All right. Welcome to Wild Oak Living. This is Johanna Wild Oak. This program comes to you every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. And it's all about sustainable living and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. Today, I'm going to share two guests and two, and two, actually three guests and two topics with you. We're, we're joined here in, uh, on via Zoom by Trip Jennings, who is, uh, a filmmaker of a, a film called Elemental, which invites us to reimagine our relationship to wildfires. And I'll tell you more about the film and Trip, and we will talk with Trip in a moment. And then at 9.30, we are going to be joined by David Burton, Burton and, uh, Abaya uh, Bosch, who are going to tell us about, I hope I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing those names right, David. I can see you in the background there. Um, uh, to tell us about a new exhibit here at the Grace Hudson Museum having to do with the back to the land movement. But let's get started with talking about this film elemental, uh, which is, by the way, let me just tell you right now that it's showing, um, at the, uh, uh, in point arena on the 20th, and I'm hoping uh, Trip can give us more details about that in a moment, but let me just give you a little bit of background about the film, and this is from the website about the film. It was filmed across the West and narrated by Golden Globe and Emmy-nominated actor David Oyelo. Um, Elemental Reimagined Wildfire is the name of the film, and it takes viewers on a journey with the top experts in the nation to better understand the uh, fire. Uh, the film follows the harrowing escape from Paradise, California, which we're all familiar with. It's not that far from us, as the town ignited from wind-driven embers and burned within a few hours of the fire start. It then continues to the even more recent fires of the last two years when Oregon, California, and Colorado suffered their worst wildfires in recorded history. Elemental Reimagined Wildfire includes the voices of climate experts, indigenous people, and fire survivors, and asks us to reimagine our relationship with wildfire as we prepare for an increasingly hotter future. Former United States uh, Forest Service Chief Michael Dombeck says of the documentary, Elemental is an outstanding film that deserves the widest possible viewing. In a visually stunning manner, it distills what I've learned about wildland fire over the decades and provides a roadmap for badly needed changes that will benefit thousands of people, particularly in fire-prone communities. In the wake of... Uh, Apologies, I thought I turned all the background noises off. In the wake of destructive fires across the nation, Elemental is an important look at discovering how we can all reimagine our relationship with wildfire and keep our homes and communities safe. The solutions are now more timely and urgent than ever. And my guest today uh, that I'm honored to welcome here on Wild Oak Living, Trip Jennings. He founded Balance Media and has worked with National Geographic for over a decade. His films have won dozens of awards around the world and have aired on major networks on every continent. For nearly two decades, uh, Ralph Bloomers um, has worked on wildfire and community safety, restored burn out, burn, restored burn trails, and assisted the scientific community uh, with bringing their knowledge and research to the public and and Ralph is uh, also a filmmaker involved in the project so I would like to now let me see if I can get that zoom window to be a little bigger I would like welcome oh, all right, here we go all right welcome troop sorry about the initial glitches here I hope we're together now yeah I'm really happy to be here thanks so much for inviting me on all right um, and um, I'm I'm hoping that uh, you'll be able to share with us some details about the showing in Point Arena. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to figure out exactly where it's showing. I'm assuming it's showing at the uh, Point Arena Theater, but I couldn't find the time that it was actually showing. So I'm hoping that maybe... right, it's showing at the Arena Theater, and um, there are the ticketing link is already live, and it is at 7 p.m. on Saturday, May 20th. Okay. And, and the, the ticket link, just in case somebody can't join us for the whole interview, let's just share that information right now. Yeah. Well, if you go to arena theater, um, dot 
org, I believe. Or if you go to our website, which is just elementalfilm.com, that's probably the easiest, mm-hmm. elementalfilm.com, and you go to the screenings tab, and you'll see all of the remaining screenings. We're nearing the end of a 200 screening run across the country, which has just been so fun. Wow. Um, so one last chance to see it on the big screen in Northern California um, on May 20th at 7 p.m. Great. Um, so I, I guess I, I usually start out by asking my guests, how did you get involved with this project? What, what fascinated you to become involved with that? Well, I live in Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. and in 2017, we had a fire that uh, really woke people up and changed the way people in Oregon thought about fire. Of course, Californians will laugh at us because it was very small in comparison. Um, but, you know, it was 40,000 acres and it was just east of Portland. And like California, when we get the east wind um, is when we get the worst fires. And so this was the first time in, you know, a generation that Portlanders had experienced ash from a wildfire falling on our cars, falling on our houses, smoke in the city. And uh, people were really freaking out. You know, it was a fire in a beautiful wildland that is very important to all of us um, because it's so special. Old growth hadn't burned in a hundred years or so. And I just really felt that the, you know, I knew a bit about fire from 15 years earlier, creating a student film as a uh, student at University of Oregon. And it felt to me like the, there was a big gap between the best available science and the public conversation that was have, being had. The, you know, general public, elected leaders, decision makers. And what I wanted to say is like, you know, a lot of these areas that are inside of a 40,000 acre fire perimeter are burned at low intensity and they're still green trees. And it was a very, you know, good fire in a lot of ways. No structures were burned except for one small outbuilding. Um, and, you know, it really created a lot of great wildlife habitat. And so that was my initial interest. I knew there was a lot I didn't know though. So I started researching and, um, I learned, I mean, a, a researcher in the first handful of months, you know, I got a grant from National Geographic to start this work. And in the first few months of filming, first shoot, actually, a researcher said, yeah, it's, you know, there's a lot of good things that happen from fire. But in terms of how we protect homes and communities, it doesn't really matter much what we do farther than 100 feet from the home. And that moment really just changed my whole understanding of fire. And I immediately thought, that guy's wrong. That can't be right. And I kind of spent five years proving him right to myself. And then, of course, a few months later, the campfire happened and the paradise disaster happened. And that, um, you know, plenty of films have gone over the events of that. But I think few films have really taken a good hard look at it with the, you know, the smartest people in the room, people like Jack Cohen, who have been researching how we protect homes and communities from wildfire for his entire career in the Forest Service. And, you know, in the beginning of the film, he says it's so frustrating to hear fire professionals say things like nothing could have been done to save the town of paradise because a lot could have been done. And that's what the film's about is how do we move forward and how do we, you know, incorporate the ecology of the land, the fire history of the land, the amazing lessons from people, from native people like the Yurok that we filmed with a lot. Um, and the best available science right now about how we live in this hotter, drier West. It's fascinating that you say that, you know, you talk to this person about who said that you, nothing can, nothing matters that, uh, except the stuff that you do within a hundred feet of the home. And of course, you know, that, that is what a lot of rules and regulations focus on. You know, we here in California, Cal Fire has rules and, and there's things that we need to do as landowners and as homeowners. And, um, it's sort of, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, 
um, it made me sort of sit up and notice when you said that because, um, you know, uh, we, we focus on that, but because it's within a landowner's ability and within our reach that we can do things. But I think my I, my understanding from what the message that you're uh, communicating in the film is there's a lot more that can be done beyond that and and I'd, and so i would like you in, in to maybe give us you know a summary i know i know people should see the film and should see the, de- the story develop but um what what are some of the things that can be done beyond uh, each of us making our homes and the land around their homes more fire safe um well okay so let's let's i'm going to back up just slightly right okay. so so there are you know, um, great reasons to put fire on the ground, um, you know, more than a hundred feet from the home, for example. And most of those are ecological, right? Um, Mm -hmm. a lot of our forests, even though we see a lot of fire now, a lot of our forests are in a bit of a fire deficit, right? Um, you know, 25, 30% of the nation's forests could use, um, you know, need some, some more fire, right? Um, and that's an ecological benefit. Because um, we haven't, we, because we haven't really done a lot of burning in the last hundred years or so. In fact, we have prevented burning, right? That has been the strategy. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's been the strategy. And and you know, it's important to remember that a lot of forests in the United States have a pretty long fire return interval. So if your reti- fire return interval is you know seventy five hundred or more than that, two hundred years then, you know, fire suppression hasn't really changed the makeup of that forest because, of course, it's used to going a 100 years or so without a fire. Now, clearly, there's like 25, 30% of the nation's forests that were used to a, a more frequent fire regime, right? And those are the forests that certainly need um, prescribed burns, right? Um, and that's really important work. But more and more what researchers and fire professionals are finding is that the work that the forest might need and the forest health is actually completely separate from whether or not the structures that we live in ignite and burn in a fire. And if there's anything that I hope people can get out of this film, it's that we need to, and we can separate this idea of what we do in the backcountry, miles from communities or miles from homes, and what we do to protect our homes and communities, the things that we want to survive the most, right, mm-hmm. is our loved ones and our memories and our homes, right? I mean, home is so important, especially when you think about layering climate hazards, right? You lose your home in a heat wave. I mean, you are, you're suddenly in significantly greater peril, right? No one wants to do that. And over the last 30, 40 years, we've seen this focus on fuels reduction, often, you know, vegetation management, often far from homes. During that time, we've seen uh, a 10,000% increase in homes destroyed. Um, so we need to reimagine what we do. We need to reimagine this, this idea of living, um, in a, in fire prone landscapes. And so part of that is certainly learning from the Yurok, learning from native people who have this culture of burning. Um, and another huge part of that is how we prepare our homes and structures. So there's a 2008 California um, Wildland Urban Interface Code for building. Mm-hmm. And that's good. It's It's got some great stuff in there. But a lot of research has happened since 2008, right? Um, we're talking about 15 years of uh, the, the most, you know, destructive fire years have happened since that code was developed. And, of course, the science behind that was a few years earlier, right? And so what we're finding is there's actually a lot more that we can do to our homes uh, and around the homes to prepare them. And this separates the risk between homes 
and wild dance, right? And that is really important. Um, fire, like hurricanes, you know, we don't have hurricane fighters. Now we need firefighters, of course, but to expect firefighters to be able to put out a hundred percent of the fires out there is, is not going to happen, right? Those 2% that escape initial attack from firefighters, they'll keep happening. And so uh, I'll get more specific as you asked. Um, there's all sorts of things that are not in the WUI code from 2008 that we can do to homes that already exist and new homes. So the most basic thing is if you have a wood roof, you got to replace it with a you know, non-combustible roof. That's not that many people anymore in California. Although I've talked to a few people in Mendocino area that do still have wood roofs. Um, Mm -hmm. So shake and shingles. Exactly. They're not common, but boy, y'all are in a fire prone landscape. As soon as you can, obviously it's expensive, replace that roof. But the next things are easy, right? It's like putting um, vents over your, uh, sorry, putting screens over your faucet soffit vents um, in your attic. I think most Californians, many Oregonians have, have been told this, um, in closing the eaves so that there's less stuff for embers to get caught in. And all of this is, and it's almost all about preventing embers from getting into your structure. It's about um, when you can, replacing your windows with multi-pane tempered glass so they don't break in a fire and have an ember burn your home from the inside out. It's being careful about pet doors, right? Because in extreme wind, your pet door blows open. An ember gets into your house and burns it from the inside out. Um, and then some of the newer, uh, I think, really exciting stuff, because it's working, is to have a five-foot non-combustible perimeter around your entire house. So that takes reimagining our relationship with garden beds <laughs> and um, putting our pathways next to our house rather than our garden beds, you know, which we love, obviously, having a nice uh, row of flowers right up next to the house, but those eventually will brown, they'll collect leaves, and those leaves can, uh, embers can find those leaves in a fire, and um, could put fire right up against your house, right? So that five-foot non-combustible space, um, it's things like non-combustible fencing for the first five feet um, up against your house, I talked to people in paradise who watched 20 homes burn down as one at a time. When one would ignite, the fire would wick along a wooden fence slowly and burn their neighbor's house down and then catch the fence on the other side and then wick slowly to the next house. So over the course of an hour, 20 houses burn. And if any one of those had had, you know, that five foot non-combustible fence touching the house, that barrier, it could have just stopped that. And so you see these things play out over and over and over again. And it's these little things that really help pre- prevent the loss. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff that works. We know it works. We see it. And, you know, the research is in the um, film. We go to labs where they burn down houses um, with cameras all over them to figure out the weak points. Uh, we follow Jack Cohen's uh, defensible space research. Um, where he's in the 90s up in the Boreal Forest of Canada, burning down entire acres to figure out how far we need to treat just in our homes and our yards um, between the the big wall of flames to prevent that from burning the house down. Um, and of course, you know, we learned so much from the Yurok who uh, have this amazing tradition um, and knowledge of, of burning and they do so much good work for the ecosystem and, and very impressive work for um, fire safety. Thank you. That that's, that's a, a lot of good information. Um, I want to just share that there is actually an event happening that will uh, share a lot of information about how, how to protect your home from wildfires. And that's happening on Thursday, May 25th at 6 PM at the city council chambers in Ukiah. Um, a, a expert, a, a forest scientist and res- registered professional forester, Jana Valokovic, I hope I pronounced that name right, is going to be joining us here in Ukiah to talk, uh, in, in great detail about this subject. Um, we, we and do have- Jana is great. I've actually, I've interviewed her for other, uh, stuff. So everyone go tell her that Trip said hi. 
And um, I can't say enough great things about her work and research. Um, ask her if she's replaced her wood shake roof. Okay, I will ask her. I'm actually planning to have Jana and uh, Scott Grady, who's who's the executive director of the Mendocino County Fire Safe Council. I'm I'm expecting to have uh, both of them on for a full one hour program with lots of details on this topic uh, on either June 1st or June 15th. I'm hoping that that's going to work out. But right right now, we have just a, a few minutes left. Um, I want to just reiterate uh, that you're listening to Wild Oak Living. I'm topping, talking to Trip Jennings, the filmmaker of Elemental, a film that invites us to reimagine our relationship with wildfire. And that's going to be showing at the Arena Theater on May 20th. Um, and Trip, oh, in, in the few minutes that we have left um, for... Um, Point Arena is sort of in in an extreme corner of Mendocino County, so not everybody's going to be able to go to Point Arena to see a film. Unfortunately, I wish it were shown in Ukiah; a lot more people could see it. Um, are there are there other ways of seeing the film, and what are some of the takeaways that you'd like to leave us with today? Uh, um, yes, so it uh, I believe it did actually show in I thought it showed in Ukiah. Uh, anyway. Okay. <laughs> we, um, but, but it, it's already come and gone. Yeah. So, um, we'll be streaming on June 13th. On June 13th, it will be on Apple and Amazon. And if you go to our website, elementalfilm.com, um, there's a link to that, to the streaming link. Can't see it until a month from now. Um, and it's not as good as it is on the big screen. Boy, of course. It's fun to watch on the big screen. So go to the theaters because it is, it's, you know, finally we can again. But, um, I think the thing that I really want to leave, folks with and what i'm really left with uh surprisingly i think after six years you know five years of production and now we're in the year of distribution for this film and living and breathing the research and of course the experience of so many people who have lost so much to wildfire i'm surprisingly hopeful because we have the science we have the practice and the capabilities of keeping our homes and communities safe from wildfire. We have to reimagine our relationship with it in order to do that. We have to make some serious changes, but those changes are very much within reach. So I really think that we're going to get this figured out and we're going to reduce the loss soon. So, you know, I hope that, uh, I hope that uh, I think this film actually is a very uplifting uh, piece about climate change because we can do it. Well, on that on that hopeful and uplifting note, I really appreciate your joining us this morning, Drip Jennings. Uh, let's give the website again and how people can find out more. Yeah, it's elementalfilm.com and the screening is the 20th in Point Arena at 7 p.m. at the Arena Theater and streaming in June. Uh, link there in our uh, on the website as well elementalfilm.com thank you so much for joining us trip jennings all the best for this project and your future projects and thank you for being on wild duck living this morning thanks for having me fun conversation with you have a great day all right thank you likewise you are listening to Wild Oak Living here on Mendocino County Public Broadcasting this is Johanna Wild Oak I bring you this program every other Thursday from 9 until 10 a.m. This program is all about living sustainably and building community in Mendocino County and beyond. And uh, we're in a moment, we're going to be talking about the Back to the Land movement and a new exhibit at the Grace Hudson Museum. I just want to reiterate the information about this event coming up about protecting your home from wildfire. So let me, if I can read this on my tiny little screen here. I will just share that information with you. So this is an event that's coming up uh, on Thursday, May 25th at 6 p.m. at the City Council Chambers at the Ukiah Civic Center. And it's all about protecting your home from wildfire. This is a free presentation by Jana Valakovic, a national expert on preparing for wildfires. Smart choices about materials and design help buildings withstand wildfires. And Jana will tell us about how to protect our own properties. Discover the 
signs of how wildfire threatens your home. Learn how simple, inexpensive changes can make all the difference in whether or not your home will survive a wildfire. See examples from fires throughout California and Colorado and what we've learned from their experience. There's also a drawing for a gift card from Mendewill and Friedman's in case you need additional motivation uh, about that. And Jana Valokovic is a forest scientist and registered professional forester, an extension agent at the University of California since 2000, and a leader in developing and delivering local and state strategies to improve wildfire resilience. Much of her work has been focused on wildfire mitigation. She's published papers on wildfire behavior, including how it interacts with home and landscape design. She's also been active in developing state and local policy as a technical resource for bioenergy, forest management, home hardening, hardening and defensible space legislation. Again, this is an event that's sponsored by the Fire Safe Council of Mendocino County and other sponsors. And it's happening Thursday, May 25th at 6 p.m. at the City Council Chambers at the Ukiah Civic Center, which is on 300 Seminary Avenue in Ukiah. All right. Take a little, a little deep breath, switch gears, switch subjects. I would like to welcome David Burton. And um, can you help me pronounce your name? I want to make sure I pronounce it correctly. Alyssa Bogue. Oh, Bogue. So I've been pronouncing it Bosch. So it's Bogue. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you so much. And welcome Alyssa Bogue and David Burton. David Burton is uh, the executive director of the Grace Hudson Museum in Ukiah. And uh, Alyssa, what's, what's your role again at the museum? I'm sorry. Yes, I'm the curator of um, education and exhibitions. Great. Um, so I, I'd like to start, we're going to be getting into this new exhibit that's uh, starting on May 19th about the Back to the Land movement, which is fascinating to me. I was about, you know, 20 or 30 years too late for that, but it still fascinates me because, of course, a lot of my friends uh, came here in the 70s, and so I have a lot of connections for that. And as I'm sure a lot of our listeners are either Back to the Landers or are interested in that. But before we get to that topic specifically, uh, uh, David and Alyssa, I, I would just like to uh, have you talk a bit about the Grace Hudson Museum in general. Give us a bit of a background, and um, maybe Alyssa, you can talk about uh, um, you know your your role there in, in terms of the kind of work that you do there. But let's start with you, David. Give us a bit of a background. Well, the Grace Hudson Museum um, is about thirty, a little over thirty-five years old. Um, and uh, it was uh, opened in 1986. Um, Grace, it started with Grace Hudson's historic home called the Sun House, which was built in 1911 on a, about a four acre property. And um, uh, just the short story is that at, at, in the mid seventies, the city of Ukiah made a deal with um, the, um, people who were living in the Sun House, connected to Grace through in-laws in and stuff, um, uh, made, it, made a deal to purchase the house and the properties to preserve it um, as a place to honor the legacy of both Grace Carpenter Hudson, the painter, and her husband, John Hudson, uh, who was an ethnographer. Uh, and uh, the city not only bought the house, the property, but all the contents of the house, which included a number of paintings and other materials associated with Grace Carpenter Hudson's career. She was a late 19th, early 20th century painter, a bit of a pioneer. Uh, she was a, a successful professional fine art painter, and there were very few women who did that. So that's notable. And the other big thing that's notable about Grace is that uh, her primary subject matter were Pomo peoples. Um, and she did many portraits and many scenes of everyday life in Pomo culture. And in that respect, she documented uh, the Pomo people at that period of time, late 19th, early 20th century. Um, her husband, John Hudson, I mentioned, was an ethnographer, and he did a lot of work with uh, Pomo people and other native California people, studying their life ways, documenting them. Uh, we have extensive field notes that he took. Uh, and so... Uh, the Grace Hudson Museum is not only a place that honors Grace and John, but also Pomo culture 
and we try to make that a, a major focal point of what we do here as well. And in addition to having um, the the um, changing exhibits, you also have an, an ongoing exhibit uh, of both uh, Pomo culture as well as paintings related to that, right? That is correct. We have three galleries, which we call core galleries, uh, which means they're at the core of our mission, but also they um, uh, we, we rotate things in and out uh, periodically. One is a, a gallery devoted to Grace Hudson's artwork. Uh, and we have a you know close to 50 works of art by Grace in that gallery at any given time. We have a smaller gallery devoted to the family history of the Carpenter family and the Hudson family. Uh, and then we have a, a, a gallery devoted to pommel basketry. Mm -hmm. uh, we're very proud of all of those. And then we have a, a, a rotating exhibit space in the front. That's where um, the Back to Land exhibition will take place. But I also want to mention we also have an outdoor garden area we call the Wild Gardens. It's a native teaching garden where people can learn about indigenous species of plants in uh, from the ecosystems of Mendocino and Lake County. Uh, and also uh, can learn about how Pomo peoples traditionally have used those plants in their life ways. And then, of course, the Sun House is still here, and we do guided tours of the Sun House uh, um, every week. Thank you, David Burton, Executive Director of the Grace Hudson Museum. Uh, Alyssa Bogue, let's hear from you about your role at the museum and some of the work that you do there. Yeah, I mean, my main role is to provide educational programs for school groups or adult groups that want to come to the museum and to, to organize that. We have many docents who've been um, working here for a very long time who help out with those programs. And then um, is to curate exhibitions. And so some of the exhibitions that we have are traveling shows, um, and some of them we curate in-house, like our um, Something's Happening Here exhibition opening tomorrow. Tomorrow. <laughs> Okay, and who who wants to start telling us about that? Well, also, mm -hmm. uh, let me let me start, and then uh, uh, Alyssa can pick up. Okay, uh, I do want to mention that th this exhibition is uh, roughly six years in the making. Wow! Um, it it really when I first started as director in at the very end of twenty seventeen, uh, a, a a handful of artists who were back to landers approached the museum about doing an exhibition on the subject matter. But it took a number of years to figure out how to do an exhibition like that, given the size of our gallery uh, and uh, the size of our staff and the expertise of our staff. And it took about two or three years before we finally landed on the fact that, and this has a lot to do with Alyssa arriving at the museum in what was that, Alyssa? 2020? 2020. Yeah. In the midst of the pandemic. <laughs> right. And, um, uh, you know, conversations we had, we finally just decided we've got to start meeting back to landers. Uh, we have to identify people who were back to landers and, and have created art. Um, and we, with the help of some back to landers who we'd spoken with, we developed over the course of time, a very long list, over 50 people, I would imagine, and interviewed um, uh, almost all of them. Um, and I would say uh, we interviewed over 40 people. Yeah. Just uh, quite a and, lot. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that, it was a very organic beginning. It was something that people in the arts community were interested in. And obviously the Back to Land movement is a very significant period of time in the history of Mendocino County. It changed the character of the county. And- um, uh, Still does to this day, I think, right? Indeed, and I mean, we've Absolutely. got people who are original back to landers living here, their children and their grandchildren as well. Um, Melissa, you wanna sort of talk about how the, how, what we created? <laughs> um, well, in those early meetings that David was talking about when the artists approached the museum, they also identified some of the key things about what a back to lander even was. Um, and so those are things like building your own house and growing your own food or canning your own vegetables. Um, for some people, it was living in communes. Um, other people, it was finding community in other ways, like community theater or you know, most people we talk to, they're not putting up a house by themselves, right? There's a, a group of people that comes to help them. Um, for some people, it was using crafts as a simpler way of living, um, or kind of getting 
developing a skill set that could be really important. Um, you know, for some people, drugs were really important, whether that was psychedelics and finding new ways of consciousness. Um, several people we talked to sold weed to kind of make ends meet where they were. Uh, many people had their children in alternative schools or helped found alternative schools and would volunteer with other parents. Um, people were seeking alternative spirituality and people were also involved often in politics and protesting nuclear power or logging or all sorts of things. Um, and so that list was kind of what we used in part when we went out to go visit people. And we also, you know, asked them how they identified. So there were cases sometimes where we would have identified them as a back to lander, but they didn't always feel that way. Um, and so it's really kind of interesting to where those lines are drawn and nobody encompasses or very few people, I think, encompass all of those traits. Um, and so it was a really kind of interesting thing. I thought it might be, um, it was less homogenous than I expected. And the one thing everyone really shared was that they were living life on their own terms in this very deliberate kind of way. And so as David said, we got a list of names from Carol Brodsky and Lolly Jacobson and different artists would also give us additional names. And, um, you know, there's several people that we did not get a chance to speak to that would have been lovely to reach out to. Um, and I think as the exhibition comes, there'll be more names that appear of people. Um, and so it was, I think, important that we looked mainly at artists for this show, because if we approached it um, as a much broader category, we wouldn't have you know, we we're already kind of bursting at the seams. We have about 35 artists in the show, which is a lot for our space. Um, and so we did a lot of work interviewing people and, you know, looking at objects and art that people still had. And sometimes people had art from the 70s, which is delightful. And a lot of times people didn't. And that was either because they had sold some of those pieces or there had been a fire or they just weren't creating work when they were kind of creating their homesteads because they were so busy creating their homesteads and it was often hard to do some of those things. So, um, so we interviewed a lot of different artists and when working with them to kind of condense part of their story, you know, into our labels and to choose objects that we think will kind of complement one another and tell different parts of, of that larger story and touch on, um, like we have Leona Walden who illustrated a book called Dwelling on Making Your Own. And so she has these beautiful illustrations of handmade homes. Um, or we have a piece by Cassie Gibson where she um, she took photographs of Mariposa School where she worked for a year and incorporated them into their quilt. And so there are all these different ways that we can use their artwork to kind of tie into those larger themes and explore the Back to the Land movement through art. Yeah, you've already, I, I think, addressed a question that I had, which is, uh, of you know, of all the different angles one could take on looking at the back to the land movement, you arrived at, at using art sort of as your as your as your mode of 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 illustrating that period. Um, and uh, you said that, you know, that 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 was because I because, you know, Otherwise, it would it, it would be a huge subject. Like, how how do you focus in on that huge subject when you have so many possible angles? So, what made you choose art as as the as the way as the as the mode of 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 communicating that period? Yeah. Well, we have we often represent local artists in our exhibitions, and one of the first exhibitions that ever happened at the museum was the show called Light and Magruder and Night. And it featured um, Tom Leiden, who's a back-to-lander, Wayne Knight, who's a back-to-lander, and Mac Magruder, who was born here but has many back-to-lander qualities. And so they reached out to the museum and really wanted to have a show here. And at first, there was only one gallery at that time, which was displaying Grace's work. And so if they were to show the work of these artists, they wouldn't be able to show the Grace Hudson paintings. And so there was a big debate, um, but... But that was the first ever show featuring local artists. And that's a tradition that we've continued. And so it's part of um, what we do on a regular basis in our rotating spaces. And then, of course, you know, Grace Hudson was a painter. Um, and so there's natural tie-ins to art and to featuring local artists. Also, it, this, the decision to go with art dates back to the early conversations, you know, five or six yeah. years ago. And that was, you know, how do we approach the subject matter? And you know, we're not, we're not 
really a history museum. There's history here, but uh, we we still see it more, more ourselves more as a, a fine art museum between Grace's work and the beautiful pomo basketry as art. Um, and and so we ju you just have to make very clear decisions at some point about how you're going to narrow it down and what your focus is going to be. If it was going to be a history museum, I, I think I would have called the county museum in Willits and and encourage them to do it as a history show. But, um, you know, as as Alyssa said, we have a long tradition of featuring Mendocino County artists in in our our temporary gallery here. And it's just it also allowed us to um, document who were people making art in Mendocino County yeah. who were part of that back to land movement. Um, I'll also say that we took inspiration from the uh, oral history series that Kate Magruder put together, which uh, I believe is still featured on the KZYX website. Um, and uh, we had a lot of conversations in those early days. And uh, I think what, what, what we wanted to do with our exhibition was do for visual arts uh, what Kate Magruder did for oral histories. And so the combination of Kate's work in oral history and our work documenting art in uh, the area during the back to land movement or as part of the back to land movement is all foundational material for future scholars to really study what was going on here in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That and was, I just want yes, to add in quickly mm -hmm. go ahead, um, that Kate Magruder and Laura Hamburg kind of served as advisors while we worked on this project. And so that was kind of really lovely and you know, we could run certain things past them or they could connect us to other people as we were creating our programs and our exhibitions. So um, so just want to make sure we give a shout out to them. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it, it's, you, you've already mentioned, you know, there's such a rich history of art in this back to the land community. Um, I'm wondering if, uh, if in, in you know, talking with people and in putting this exhibit together, um, if you discovered, you know, that, that the whole back to the land sort of ecosystem promotes that kind of um, artistic environment, uh, um, is that something that, or, or what, what did you discover in the process? I think one of the things that we found um, when we were interviewing artists is that we think most of the artists would have been artists regardless of where they were. Um, but we do also think that the back to land lifestyle is inherently creative as you have to find solutions to all of these things and learn how to do, um, you know, plumbing on your own. And so kind of finding solutions and living that way is also in itself a kind of creative endeavor. And certainly, you know, people building their own homes, a lot of those are, you know, creative works in and of themselves. And so, uh, we definitely wanted to make sure that we could highlight some of that. You know, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you said that because, uh, you know, I I I did all of the things you just described. You know, learning plumbing and building my own home and all of those things. Only 30 years later than the original Back to the Land movement, but I sort of imitated all of that. Um, but it hasn't turned me into an artist. Um, and and I just realized, well, my artistic endeavor is just in a different <laughs> in a different realm. You know, I don't put it on paper. Or I don't write it out in words. And um, I just, you know. The art of living. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, and I, I would also say, Johanna, the art of uh, doing a radio show, a regular radio show, that's, that is creativity right there. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. Uh, and I have enjoyed doing that for more than 20 years. And it's such an honor to have this means of communication to help get the word out to our wonderful community about, you know, creative people like you and, and at the, uh, and like David Burton and, and Alyssa Bogue at the Grace Hudson Museum and just people who make a difference, people who, who make a difference in our community and who provide solutions to questions. Um, there is somebody who's trying to call in and I was actually wasn't planning to take calls, but maybe this is pertinent to this topic. So I'm going to take a chance and, and see if this caller wants to join our conversation. So let me see if I can do this without causing any problems here. Hello, caller. You're live on Wild Oak Living. Hello, caller. You're live on Wild Oak Living. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to be. 
Very okay. sorry. All right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we took a chance. Okay. So, um, we have, uh, about nine or eight or nine minutes left in our conversation. And, um, I would like to have you sort of, um, you know, steer the ship in, in terms of what do you think we should, we should spend that time on? Because there's so many things to talk about as far as this exhibit and the museum is concerned. So, um, David and Alyssa, what are some of the things you'd like to share with us about this upcoming museum or about the Grace Hudson Museum that we haven't talked about yet? Alyssa, do you want to talk about the diversity of arts that are going to be featured in the exhibition? Perfect. Yeah. And we have um, we have so many artists. So we have um, ceramics, we have textiles, we have um, woodworking, we have paintings, mixed media work. So there's a huge variety that really speaks um, about all the different mediums that, that people were involved with. Um, and it's hard to pick out just, just a few. Um, I'm debating right now. One thing, too, that we decided to do with this exhibition um, is it's a very dense show. Um, so things will be closer together than normal. Um, but we've also created these kind of um, a diorama scenes, if you will. So when you come in, we'll have a living room scene um, with a chair and a, um, a side table from Thomas McFadden or Tom McFadden, who lives out in um, Anderson Valley and has been working there for decades. And that's a rocking chair that, um, you know, his children have used to rock their children in has been passed down. Um, and on top of it is a lamp by James Dahl, who's a potter out on the coast. Um, and so that's, and then we also have a rug by Joe Britton who also lives on the coast and she makes, um, rag rugs and she's been getting recycled fabric, um, which, you know, is part of being sustainable for her. And she really likes to play with the colors in these different types of ways. And she does commissioned pieces too for people so they could include their, you know, their family members' pieces if they wanted to and create a special item. My mother, so my mother made rag rugs at home while my sister and I were little as, as a means of generating additional income. Yeah, it was surprising to me too how many people had taken up spinning at one point. Um, so like Kat Emerson, I think, um, she lives up near Laytonville. She did spinning for a while, but mostly she does figure portraits, um, paintings and drawings. And um, and so we have a drawing of um, Jade, I think, who was, they really formed this community up there with fellow back to Landers. And so when her friends, when her friend passed, she took in her friend's daughter for a while. Um, and so the painting is of her friend's daughter kind of looking out at the hills of home. And so that was a really lovely story. And it was a lovely visit to see where they live on the land. Um, and that was the, the furthest north we got was with Kat. Um, you know, we have a way to talk about theater art. So that was one of the challenges is, you know, how do we talk about these other forms of art that aren't really two dimensional? And so, you know, we're not going to have a theater performance in the exhibition constantly going, but we do have posters for you know, Ukiah Players Theater and Space and for, you know, all these musical groups out on the coast, like the Horse Bedorties, um, or I think there's one for One Night Stand. There's a lot of great names. Um, and one of those poster artists is John Chamberlain, who has passed um, a number of years ago. But he was really prolific out on the coast and did a number of signs and graphics and was in all sorts of bands. Um, but we also have masks from Jackie Lowlich, who made masks for theater productions. And we have musical instruments from David Dart, who's a luthier in Navarro. Um, and then we also have um, kind of a gallery scene. Um, so one of the artists with her husband, they founded what's now Highlight Gallery. Um, Steve Caravello, who was involved in the movement, he um, helped found Made in Mendocino, which was an artist gallery down in Hopland for a while. And so a number of artists were either involved or still are involved with artist galleries and creating them and creating artist cooperatives um, or creating galleries in general. So um, so there's a number of, of all sorts of aspects and all sorts of pieces from all sorts of artists. You know, when you talk about how you talk to the artists and, and got some of the background on the pieces, it almost makes me wish I, I could have been a filmmaker with a camera 
recording all these conversations because to me that is an additional dimension of I think what you're trying to communicate right and it was really interesting because we didn't actually so many people have moved into town now Mm. Um, and so it was quite a while into the process before we made it out to Greenfield Ranch or we really made it out to a homestead where someone is still living today and so that was a really unique experience um you know Doug Bro who, who recently passed was particularly welcoming um and it was just a beautiful day and he had a beautiful view and we got to see his work in his studio there and the kilns that he had made um you know and have some food from his garden and so it was really lovely to get out to all of these different places where people have made made their homes in these beautiful spaces i might add uh, to johanna uh, it, 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 we're, once the exhibition is open, we're going to work on an, um, a modest exhibition catalog um, that will cover, you know, all the artists and what the show is all about. And we hope to have that ready maybe maybe in a month or two or something like that. Yeah. People should look out for that. And also we've got uh, a handful of really great programs that will happen during the run of the exhibition that will uh, start on June 17, Saturday, June 17. We're having a, what we're calling a solstice celebration. Uh, solstice celebrations were very common among communes and up at Greenfield Ranch. Great times that people got together. Uh, so we're going to have one here. It's not exactly the day of the solstice, but it's the Saturday before. And we'll have a lot of uh, interactive activities going on at the museum. And then we've got uh, panel discussions with a variety of artists, both in July and in August. Uh, and in September, we're going to screen a film um, that was created by Carmen Goodyear and Lori York about uh, women farming on the coast. Oh, wonderful. Yeah that evolution uh so and all of those programs if if people go to our website and click on uh current exhibition uh, uh which is the back to land exhibition they they'll be able to find uh the list of all of those programs and dates and times so give us the name of the website and again when is there an event planned for the exhibit opening and and or, yeah okay yeah we'll we'll have an opening reception tomorrow night from 5 to 7 30 we'll have live music from will siegel and a group of people he plays music with all back to landers and uh we're just going to have a celebration of the artists and the opening of the show tomorrow night. and just quickly the website before we get cut off uh org. thank you so much Alyssa Bog and and david burton from grace hudson museum um, and uh, and for joining us on Wild Oak Living and all the best for the exhibit. Thank, Thank you, you for having Thank us. You. Thank you Thank for you. inviting us. Thanks. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.